And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, this is a huge episode today. I'm so excited. I cannot believe that I'm talking to this man. We're talking about Peter Lavenda. If you don't know who he is, shame on you. Look him up right now and buy every one of his books. Uh, But if you don't have time to look him up right now, continue to buy his books. But I'm going to give you just a little rundown on who this man is. Now, Peter is an acclaimed author, but most famously, he is known for his works in Nazi occultism and mysticism, including Unholy Alliance and The Hitler Legacy. Uh, These are books that you've got to read, including Ratline, which is the one we're going to talk about today. He researches the occult, mysticism, mystic teachings. He kind of finds those little pieces in history that are so crazy and weird that you would think it's made up. However, they are so incredibly researched. The details that go into this, the things that he finds, uh, is you, you can't help but wonder what else everyone is hiding from you. Uh, I mean, he just paints a great picture and finds all those little nuggets. Specifically today. Listen to this. Now, I'm not pitching the next blockbuster movie, although maybe I really am. But here is what his book that we're going to talk about today. It's called Ratline. Listen to this. We're talking about how the Nazis escaped Germany right after World War II. We're talking about the involvement of the Vatican to help them do that. A blind eye was turned by both the Soviets and the Americans at the time. And not only that. But Peter Lavenda makes a very strong argument that the most prominent member to use the rat lines to escape Europe was none other than Adolf Hitler, who lived in Indonesia until 1970. That's the story. This is this is incredible. Let's just get right into this. We're talking about the book Ratline. Um, I'm very excited about this book. And you know what's great about this book is it's you know it's if not more relevant today than it was when you wrote it, because there there are so many different news stories coming out, you know, kind of confirming what you've researched and and also the aftermath of the things that happened, including uh, an article that just came out two weeks ago that France, France put out an article that Brunner died in Syria in a basement in 2001, which you talk about in your book as he was, you know, took the Middle East rat line out and was working for Syria and their intelligence community and everything like that. Sure. Um, so it's, you know, things like that are coming out. There's families trying to get back their artwork that was stolen, um, you know, fighting with both American museums and, you know, Spanish museums and European museums, uh, there's things that were used to help people escape uh, both the Nazis and the Jews that were fleeing the Nazis. So it's all kind of coming full circle. This is a very relevant book. Um, but, the, you know, let's get let's get right into this, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so the... The thing that kind of uh, well, let's talk, I'm going to quickly tell, say what rat lines are, uh, which and correct me if I'm wrong here. Let me see if I can break it down. These are basically almost like an underground railroad esque tra- uh, like path for SS officers and Nazis that were fleeing the, the the Soviets and the Allied the Allied forces in general, help them get out of Nazi Germany, out of Europe, and into other foreign countries. Is that pretty much? Does that kind of sum it up? That's that's pretty much it. Yep. Okay, so let's talk about um, let's talk about how you got into this because we're going to start at the end and then hopefully we'll tell this narrative correctly. We'll get back to the beginning. You found a very interesting news article in 1983, and that's how you kind of stumbled into this whole story. Let's talk about that first. I really did start this um, research back in uh, well, I went to Chile in 1979. Um, which was my first direct uh, confrontation with the rat line uh, itself, which was in 79. By 83, um, what happened was Klaus Barbie suddenly became very uh, 
very well known. Here was a war criminal uh, responsible for uh, torture and murder of prisoners in France during the war who had escaped with the United States assistance, actually, managed to wind up in Bolivia. And in Bolivia, he actually became head of the secret police under one of the uh, Bolivian presidential administrations. So here we have a Nazi uh, who was a, a, an absolute war criminal, I mean, wanted by everyone, who then rose to a position of prominence in a foreign government in South America. And by the 80s, they had revealed who he was. They had uh, managed to extradite him to France to stand trial. But it was the, the uh, process as to how he was able to leave Europe and wind up in Latin America and South America that was that revealed the existence of the rat line. Until that time, we had heard about the Odessa file. You know, we had Frederick Forsyth and his novel and the movie based on it. Uh, we had Simon Wiesenthal talking about the uh, the rat lines and the escape routes. Uh, but people sort of thought it was at least 50% Hollywood fiction. And when Barbie was finally uh, located and extradited, we found out that there was a great deal more to that story than uh, than Forsyth and, uh, and and Wiesenthal were telling us because it was it was much deeper it was much more pernicious because it involved elements of the Roman Catholic Church it involved elements of the International Red Cross and American and other intelligence agencies all collaborating in helping Klaus Barbie to escape and as we pulled away the the layers of that we found out that hundreds at first and then perhaps thousands of SS war criminals uh, managed to escape using what were known as the rat lines. And the rat line was kind of a, of a term given to it uh, right around 1945 itself. As the war was, was coming to a close, there was a Roman Catholic monsignor, uh, a, a Croatian Catholic called uh, Krunoslav Draganovic. Draganovic was a monsignor in the Catholic Church, and his brief was to help the puppet state, the Ustashe, which was a Nazi puppet state in Croatia during the war, to help their leaders escape. Uh, that was his first uh, mission, was to get the president of that republic, as well as most of his ministers, and their gold, most importantly, get all of that out of Croatia and then out of Europe and to Argentina, which is where they all fetched up uh, at the end of the war. So he started by doing that, and he used his contacts within the Catholic Church throughout uh, northern Europe, northern Italy, all the way to Genoa so they could get on the ships and go. And in order to do that, he created what was known as the monastery route. And that meant that it was a series of safe houses that were monasteries, convents, uh, Catholic churches all up and down uh, the, the coastlines, both sides of Italy, particularly in the north and also provided them with false documentation. Um, the church was perfectly willing to do this because they saw the Nazis as basically a bulwark against communism, which they saw as the greater enemy. So they helped as many of these fascist and Nazi leaders escape uh, so that they could carry on the fight uh, against communism in different places. So basically what we're talking about is not that, the, the, uh, that they lost the war. Germany lost the war. But from the SS point of view, they simply moved their theater of operations to North Africa, to South America, and other places around the world to continue what they saw as their their sacred struggle against communism, against uh, against the Jews, against other races, etc., etc. No, that, that's a great way to put it. You actually, in, in the book, I just want to read this really quickly. It's a perfect definition. It kind of sums up everything. As you say, the Ratline networks were global, well-financed from a variety of sources, uh, and included covert assistance from the International Red Cross, the Vatican, European and Latin American, and Middle Eastern and Asian governments, Allied military intelligence, and their later incarnations, CIA, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's perfect. You know, I think I, I, miss, I mistimed the nugget at the beginning, which I think is really important, uh, because what, what you reveal in this book um, is what I think is truly fascinating, is that you make a very strong, credible argument that Hitler himself actually escaped Europe and lived a very long life in Indonesia. And so when I said in 1983, you stumbled across uh, a diary that was allegedly written by either either he or his, uh, and I believe the, the doctor's name, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, I'm sure, was uh, George Polk. 
P O C H. Right. And the, so the diary was either written by him or his wife. Um, I, I, I couldn't really tell because I believe um, there was some argument that his wife may have actually written the book. Uh, and you make a very strong argument that that could that his wife would have been Ava Braun. Uh, so that's the nugget I'm saying that we start out with that because that's kind of what I thought that was kind of the genesis that sent you down that whole that whole path of the, the, the Hitler path, which we come to at the end of the story. Um, so that was a, that was the article I was referring to. Yeah, the Hitler thing is is is, is different. The 1983 revelations of the Klaus Barbie escape routes uh, was the first time that people heard the term heard the name Krunoslav Dragunovich. Uh, here was this Catholic priest. He was called Father Devil, actually, by a lot of the people who knew him because he was that kind of a satanic personality in a clerical collar. Um, that name came up in 1983. I, I registered that at the time because I was following up the Barbie story and all the rest of it, all the things that were exploding uh, around the story of the Ratlines. But it wasn't until uh, this century um, in uh, 2007 and 2008 that I suddenly became involved in this particular story. And the reason is the diary that you mentioned uh, is a diary that exists. Uh, right now it's being held in Singapore, uh, but it was in Indonesia for a very long time. I've seen it, so I know it, it's physically it, it exists, and I've examined uh, most of it, or at least a large part of it. Um, the diary itself mentions... Krunoslav Draganovich in it. So here's this very old, it's a kind of a combination address book and diary. It's a small uh, uh, sort of green covered uh, document uh, that uh, this, this person, whoever it was, whether it was Georg Anton Peuch or whether it was Adolf Hitler, uh, was keeping notes in. And I was poo-pooing the idea that Hitler had survived the war. I had always uh, taken it for granted that he committed suicide in the bunker. On April 30th, 1945, this was this was sort of you know uh, something we all agreed on as as a fact, um, not realizing that there really was no hard evidence that this was true. There was no body, there was no corpse, either of of Hitler or of Eva Brown. There was no forensic evidence that he had died in the bunker. The only information we have about that was by other SS who were in the bunker with him. So, you know, what possible motivation would they have to lie, right? Mm -hmm. So nice. we have so we have all these people who made it their their business to commit murder and atrocities and everything else and basically devastate an entire continent, be responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. And now we're believing, we're taking them at face value when they said, oh, yes, Hitler committed suicide in the bunker. The problem was some of the eyewitnesses said he took cyanide. Some of the eyewitnesses said he shot himself. Some of the other eyewitnesses said someone else shot him on his orders, uh, and on and on. There was no consistency uh, among the eyewitness testimony, which is, you might say, is typical of eyewitness testimony, except in a case like this of such historical import and such gravity, you would think there would be some consistency among the eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the eyewitnesses who were in captivity in the Soviet Union, because the Russians were the first into Berlin, they were the first at the bunker, their witnesses were telling them all kinds of stories. I mean, they were subjected to torture. So every time they were tortured, they gave a different story. So we had a, a whole series of different stories coming out of the Soviet Union, out of KGB and, uh, and Smersh uh, headquarters, was giving us all sorts of different, different stories, completely different stories, to the point where Stalin was saying he didn't believe that Hitler had died in the bunker. And then the, the prisoners we had, the Americans had, we're telling another set of stories, and the prisoners the British had were telling a different set of stories. But in the end, what was important was there was no body, there was no corpus delecti, there was nothing. And the idea was, well, the SS officers cremated the corpses. Well, you know how much gasoline it takes to cremate a corpse? Um, they didn't have it. They didn't have that, that much gasoline. They had a couple of tanks of uh, containers of, of petrol. They poured it over the bodies according to their story. They set it on fire. And, you know, the bodies were scorched, but they were not you know, rendered into ash. And there still would have been skeletal material under those circumstances. And nobody had anything. So around 2008, 2009, I'm in Indonesia because I was there for other reasons. And I keep hearing the story that Hitler had escaped to Indonesia and lived out the rest of his life there. And I thought, yeah, right. 
um, you know, that's, you know, not that credible. And I kind of ignored it until uh, one day I uh, heard that uh, someone that I knew, an archaeologist from the state of Connecticut, a, a doctor, uh, Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, had actually made it to Moscow to the headquarters of what used to be KGB, where they claimed they had Hitler's skull in their possession. And he was able to examine the skull and even to take a piece of it back for analysis. And the result of that study was it was not Hitler's skull. It wasn't the skull of a male. It was the skull of a woman. And it wasn't Eva Braun's skull either. The age and everything else was wrong. So basically the Soviets and then later the Russians had no evidence to support their claim that Hitler's body had been found in the bunker. There was nothing there. So with that information in one hand and with looking at this diary in the other, which is talking about an escape route, the exact same escape route that all the other Nazis were, were using to get out of town, here was a, this document in Indonesia. And here was photographs of this man who escaped to Indonesia, and he has the, the Charlie Chaplin mustache. Mm -hmm. And, and he's, he's, he's thin. I mean, he's extremely thin. So you, he doesn't look like Adolf Hitler at all until you match those photographs with the photographs of Hitler when he fought in World War I, when he was emaciated and you know living in the trenches. The early Hitler and this later photograph of, of um, someone in Indonesia is almost an identical match. And so I started to follow up the story. And I went to the gravesite where this gentleman had been buried in Surabaya in Indonesia. And one of the most striking things about his tombstone is that there were no dates on it. So the guy's name, Georg Anton Puch, was, was there, engraved, but there was no date of birth and no date of death. Now, if you've ever been to a Muslim cemetery, you know, the, the, the graves are all pretty much the same design, the same style, and every single one has the dates on it. There's never any ambiguity about when someone died, okay? Right. You may have some ambiguity about when they were born. Maybe you don't sure. have that data. Yeah. For when, but if you're burying the guy, you kind of know when he died. Right. Right? Within a couple of days, I'm sure. Yeah, within a couple of days. <laughs> right. So there was nothing there, right? So there's like, there's nothing. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, what is this all about, right? So I start to backtrack the story. And I start to try to find out who this guy was. And it turns out that the name belonged to, Georg Anton Puch, belonged to a med chief medical officer of Salzburg, of the Salzburg Gau. And the Nazis had separated uh, Germany and Austria into Gau. These were ancient kind of provinces going back to the days of the Teutonic Knights or something. So the Salzburg area, let's say the Salzburg province, this guy was the chief medical officer. Now, a chief medical officer who's a Nazi it's, it's a very different kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. it's just, this is someone that you have to reason to, to be afraid of. And according to the document that I saw, which was his written record, he was escaping just one step ahead of the Allies. And as I later found out, as friends of mine had, when they heard I was working on the story, suddenly little bits of information started pouring in from all over the place. And it turns out that the, the Americans had posted newspaper articles in the local newspapers in Salzburg looking for this guy and his wife. I mean, he was wanted hmm. uh, turned, because he was a Nazi. He was involved in, he was a member of the party right away. This is a problem. He was also chief medical officer, uh, which is a high ranking status within uh, the Nazi regime. Plus he probably was responsible for euthanasia and for, you know, murdering innocent civilians because of health reasons or infirmities or something else. I mean, the Nazis were doing that as part of their official policy. So there was a lot of reasons why they would, would have wanted to talk to this guy. But he escaped and his wife escaped. Um, they wound up in northern Italy, in Bolzano, in that area, which is where all the Nazis fled. I mean, so we're talking Draganovic's Nazis from Croatia. They initially went to northern Italy to Bolzano, which is in the Tyrol. It's, it's, it's a part of a territory that at one point was Italy, at one point was Austria, then it went back to Italy. So there's a lot of German-speaking people living in this part of Italy. And he wound up there with his wife for a number of years for some reason. Based on the documentation I saw, he was at least making an attempt to learn Spanish. He, was, he knew Draganovich. He knew all the contact information. I mean, all of the... All the information he needed to make his way to Genoa and get out of the country was there. 
He had all the contact people that he needed. He knew everybody. He knew the rat lines inside and out, whoever this guy was. And then at some point in the early 1950s, he, he makes a run into Europe, into the rest of Europe outside of Bolzano. He goes to Switzerland. He goes to a few other places. It seems to me he's picking up a lot of cash mm. and he's getting his escape ready. And then he leaves. He leaves by ship and he winds up in Jakarta in Indonesia. And then from Jakarta makes his way to the most remote place he could find that still had some kind of running water and electricity. He found an island far to the east of Bali, very close to where the Komodo dragons come from. He's all the way out in the middle of nowhere, this highly educated, highly cultured Austrian guy. And I saw his passports. And he was an Austrian citizen like Hitler. He was born about the same year as Hitler. He was exactly the same height as Hitler. I mean, every and the, the handlebar mustache, everything was fitting, which is why I could see where people would think this really was Hitler. And he goes to this very remote area and then never leaves. I mean, he stays there. He's like, he's in this remote place with he and his wife, and they build an entire life. Now, what happened is that his wife was much more better known than he was. His wife was at one point the head of the Viennese um, Anthropological Association. She was a very well-known anthropologist who had worked during World War I measuring skulls and stuff. Mm -hmm. And during World War II had petitioned Seiss Inquart, who was the the uh, governor general of the Netherlands, responsible for the deaths of Anne Frank, among every, uh, everyone else, she had petitioned him, who was, he, they were friends since Austria, uh, petitioned him to say, can I go to the, to the death camps and to the concentration camps and separate the Ashkenazi Jews from the Sephardic Jews so I can measure their crania, you know, mm -hmm. and figure out what the racial differences might be. Right. This was a woman who was very definitely part of the Nazi regime you know, part of the eugenics programs and everything else, she was passing um, judgment on who was and who was not actually biologically Jewish. I mean, I have documentation that shows she was working very carefully and very deeply with the Reich's Office for uh, Race and Resettlement and identifying who were Jews and who were not. This woman was a war criminal as much as her husband, if not more. Mm -hmm. that's And that's so, a very important part of the story. I mean, because yes, she was she was heavily involved, um, also in the institute that you uncover as being integral in the rat line as well. But but so both of the, so both of them end up in a very remote part of Indonesia, and one that doesn't have a lot of Germans nor doctors. Am I correct? Exactly. So this guy, who's basically an administrator, an office guy in a medical department, now becomes a medical doctor, an actual GP. You know, working on the island of Sumbawa which is, you know, really, really far out there. And this is in the 1950s, remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sumbawa is pretty remote today. Right, you know? right, right. In the 1950s, we're talking, you know, we're talking Indiana Jones territory. Sure. We're talking jungles and jeeps and stuff. <laughs> right, right. So it's like, it's the boys from Brazil, but it's the boys from Sumbawa, mm -hmm, right? right? He's all the way out in the middle of, of nowhere. So why, right? And I'm starting to put all this together, and I'm thinking... Maybe they have a point because there was an SS officer uh, who was the head of the SS actually when, when Himmler was fired by Hitler in the very last days. You had a guy called Ernst Kaltenbrunner. And Ernst Kaltenbrunner was this tall, you know, a typical sort of uh, comic opera Nazi. I mean, this tall guy with a scar on his cheek and the whole nine yards. And he was trying to escape. He was in the, the area of Salzburg, this, the same area where the rat lines originated. And he was caught carrying a medical bag, a doctor's bag, and um, documentation, identification papers of an actual German medical officer. And he was trying to escape as a doctor, as a medical doctor, but he was so physically imposing, everybody knew who he was, and they picked him up and that was the end of it. And I thought, wait a minute, Kaltenbrunner actually had doctor's documentation on him. He had identification papers as a doctor, was even carrying a doctor's bag. What if those two people in Sumbawa, in Indonesia, got out the same way? What if their identification papers were those of an actual doctor, Georg Anton Puch, the guy that we know did exist, and his wife, Helen Puch, that we know did exist? What if they're dead someplace in Bolzano? And what happened was Hitler and Eva Braun took these doctor's papers and got out. 
that would explain why it took them so many years to get out. They were in deep in hiding in Bolsano. They were creating their their um, their aliases and their fake identities and all the rest. I had a, a, a tendency to disbelieve that Hitler would have gone to Argentina, if only because at that late stage of the war, in, the ni- in 1944 to 45, Hitler trusted no one. He certainly didn't trust his generals because they tried to kill him. Uh, he didn't trust Himmler because Himmler was trying to cut a separate deal with the Allies. Everybody around him was betraying him. So Hitler, for from my point of view, the last thing he would do was go to Argentina and be surrounded by all these people who would drop a dime on him in a heartbeat just to save their own lives. What if he thought, where can I go that I'll never be found because I'm now the most wanted man in the world? Where should I go? And why not the most populous Muslim country in the world, which was not you know, deeply involved in the war in Europe? I mean, they, they were involved in World War II, definitely, to a large extent. The Japanese had invaded them. And before that, the Dutch were controlling them, and the Dutch had a very strong Nazi party. So there was a Nazi underground already in existence in Indonesia that might have helped him if he really needed it. And so I started to put these things together and think, okay, there is a possibility that Hitler survived the war. Uh, The story we have that he committed suicide in the bunker was given to us by a British intelligence officer called Hugh Trevor Roper, who was an historian. And the British intelligence people said, listen, Hugh, you've got three months, you've got 90 days, you have to prove Hitler's dead and committed suicide in the bunker. Don't care how you do it, you've got 90 days. Um, This is called Operation Nursery, by the way, Mm -hmm, because we're going to be telling fairy tales to the kids. You've got 90 days, you don't speak German, you don't have access to the prisoners the Americans have or the Russians have. But, you know, you got 90 days, Make build up the story so that we can make this statement and put everything to rest and we can move on. And that's what he did. He took 90 days. At the end of 90 days, he gave a very nice presentation in the days before PowerPoint, you know. Right. He just got up sure. there and did his presentation and said, yes, Hitler committed suicide 100%, no question about it, nothing to see here, move along. And that's what happened. And we all bought the story, even though there was no evidence at all. So I put all this together and I said, okay, I'm going to entertain this story. Because if nothing else, there is actual documentation of an actual rat line extending as far as Indonesia. And who else did I find in Indonesia but one of Hitler's closest friends, Walter Havel. Walter Havel was a kid when he marched with Hitler and Himmler in the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923. He actually was a devoted Nazi as a teenager, was marched with Hitler, was arrested with Hitler, was in jail with Hitler at Landsberg for a short period of time, got out, went to England, and then from England went to Indonesia where he lived for 10 years with the tea plantations that were growing in in Indonesia and set up Nazi party apparatus in Indonesia. When Hitler finally came to power in 33, he sent back for Walter Havel, Wally, Surabaya Wally, as they called him, and he came back to, to Germany and he pretty much just hung out with Hitler, who loved to hear his stories about Indonesia. So suddenly we have Walter Havel, who spent 10 years in Indonesia. He's one of the last people to leave the bunker in May of 1945. Disappeared, was never seen again. No body, no corpus delecti, nothing. Walter Havel escaped. Why wouldn't Havel and Hitler have escaped together? Havel had all the entree to Indonesia. He had been telling Hitler about Indonesia for years. We knew that Hitler had this intimate knowledge of Indonesia through his best friend, right? Mm -hmm. So it all started to to fit together. And this is when I started to say, okay, this is plausible. It could have happened. Do I know for sure that it did? No, I didn't dig up that grave in Surabaya. That would have been suicidal. Um, but I know that all the other physical evidence matched. I know no one has physical evidence on the bodies. That's gone. So there's a very plausible story that, you know, Hitler in Indonesia. And I went to Surabaya to find out, you know, what happened to get as close as I could to the story and discovered that in January of 1970, this man, whoever this guy was living on that island in Indonesia, whether it was Hitler or Georg Anton Poch, for some reason, for the first time since he came to Indonesia, picks up and goes to Surabaya, to the city, a coastal city in the northern part of, of Java. And he goes there 
Uh, evidently, according to what I could find in the address book, he was meeting someone, someone with a with a with a, a Dutch name. He was meeting in Surabaya on that day. He dies on that day, mysteriously, and that's when he's buried in the cemetery in Surabaya in January of 1970. Within months, within less than 90 days, Yuri Andropov, who's headed the KGB in Moscow, issues an order. He says, we have the bodies of Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun, as well as the entire Goebbels family and their little dog, too. Mm -hmm. We have all these bodies buried in Magdeburg, in East, what is then East Germany, under a parking lot in front of KGB headquarters in Magdeburg. Nobody knew this. Andropov had the information. He issues an order, dig up those bodies. They have to actually bulldoze through the, the, the asphalt in the, the parking lot, go down, find those bodies, take them out and burn them now. Do it immediately. Hmm. So we have this one guy dying in Surabaya at the end of January 1970. And then by April of 1970, Andropov is going nuts. And he says, we have to dig up these bodies and destroy them. That led me to find out who were those bodies, right? I mean, they had bodies. And so this story then became even more murky because the official Soviet line, which was eventually declassified after the fall of the Soviet Union and published, the Hitler book, as it's called, in, in Russia, shows that they found bodies of some kind. And they took these bodies with them in a truck and they started driving these dead bodies all over Germany. I mean, they would drive them someplace, bury them, then a day later come back, dig them up, drive them someplace else, and then bury them, dig them up. And this went on for days and weeks until finally these bodies wound up in Magdeburg. Who were these bodies? Well, according to the Soviets at the time, they were able to match the, the dentures, the dental work of Hitler and Eva Braun to the Hitler and Eva Braun bodies, quote-unquote, that they had. This was the problem, however. These dentures were made only about a week or two before the fall of Berlin, which means that Hitler and Eva Braun are going to the dentist like nothing is, nothing is different. Right, right, right. They're getting dentures made, but they're getting two pairs of dentures made, two pairs each. Okay, one pair is left behind in these quote-unquote corpses, these bodies. They don't fit in the skulls. They're actually very bad fits. I mean, the, the Soviet uh, doctors who were looking at them said the actual the, the dentures are in the skulls, but they don't fit the skulls. They're just there. It's like an insurance scam, right? Mm -hmm. So they find out that, and plus they also find out the guy who designed the dentures, who then does from memory, draws what the dentures look like from memory. He's not the dentist. He's like a dental technician. Okay. He draws, he draws <laughs> these things from memory. The Soviets are happy. Oh, yes, these must be Hitler's dentures. End of story. We've solved the case. We have the bodies. They never showed the bodies to the Allies. They never talked about the bodies to anybody else. Even Stalin didn't, doesn't seem to have been aware of these bodies. It seems to have been a kind of a scam that the Russians were perpetrating on themselves for whatever reason. But Andropov hears about this at the same time that our guy dies in Indonesia. Murdered, I would say, because the timing is extremely suspicious. This guy dies and is buried quickly in, in Surabaya. And, you know, this is 1970. By the time word gets back to, to Russia, suddenly Andropov freaks out and says, okay, we've got some bodies here. We've got to get rid of these bodies. So take them out and, and cremate them. Make sure there's no evidence left. So what does all that mean? You know, this has got me going for years, trying to figure out the, the truth of this story. I've talked to a lot of people. I've been in Indonesia a number of times. I've been in Singapore where the gentleman who has these documents, you know, still has them. I was able to see some of them. I was, uh, I was totally amazed at the names in the, 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 this address book of the, the famous Nazis that this guy knew, whoever this guy was. He knew everybody. You know, he knew where they wound up after the war. He had their addresses in South America. I mean, he had Heinrich Herrer's address in Tibet. Hmm. You know, the seven days, the seven years in Tibet guy, the Brad Pitt movie. Mm -hmm. This was based on a real person, an SS officer who escaped from India into Tibet, became an advisor to the Dalai Lama. This address book has Heinrich Herrer's address in it in Tibet before he actually got out of Tibet. Right. This guy was intimate with all of these people. 
he knew everybody. Whoever this guy was who wound up in Indonesia was heavily connected. Plus, he knew where the rat lines were, and he knew how to, how to, how to use the rat lines. He knew how to utilize them. It was all there in this one document, uh, a couple of pages of which are duplicated in rat line. So, you know, something was going on there, something, you know, sort of outrageous. And then after the book was published, after I had Ratline uh, out in the world, I was contacted by a number of people, one of whom said, hey, you know, we've, we've solved one of those mysteries that you have because one of the notebooks that this guy in Indonesia was keeping, this, this Austrian, Georg mm-hmm. Puck, had some strange symbols on it and some numbers and some mysterious uh, abbreviations. And I couldn't make head or tail out of it until I published another book called The Hitler Legacy, which followed up on Ratla. Mm-hmm. Someone had gone through it and said, oh my goodness, you don't understand. You've actually revealed yourself what this was. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And they gave me, they said, look at this page, and they look at that page. And it turns out that the, the strange cryptic notations on that little green address book from Indonesia matches the address of a mysterious bank in Jakarta, a bank that was used as part of the equally mysterious um, revolutionary fund. This is something that Sukarno, who was president of Indonesia at the time, the first president of the liberated you know, post-Dutch colonial Indonesia, Sukarno had created something he called the Revolutionary Fund. And this was supposed to be uh, a competitor to the International Monetary Fund and the World mm, Bank. Okay. Sukarno was trying to go what he called the third way. Neither communists nor capitalists, neither West nor the East, but the non-aligned nations, all those nations that were not going to be part of the sphere of influence of either the Russians or the United States. He created this separate entity, and he created this fund. And as we found out later, we didn't find this out until the Clinton administration, and that was that 40 tons of Nazi gold made its way from Portugal to the banks in Portugal to Macau, which was at that time a Portuguese colony. Out of those 40 tons of gold, 20 tons went into China somewhere. We don't know where. The other 20 tons of that Nazi gold wound up in Indonesia. And that's been covered in the New York Times and a number of other places. So we know that that happened. And it's quite possible that what Sukarno was doing was creating the fund based upon this sudden influx of Nazi gold. Well, the problem is gold certificates were then issued against this gold. And they were issued out of this mysterious little bank that only had one branch and one, one office in Jakarta. And our two individuals in Sumbawa, the putative Hitler and his wife Eva Braun or Georg Polk and Helen Polk, whoever they were, they each had accounts at this bank. Not, you know, the Bank of Indonesia, none of the major banks that had branches all over the islands everywhere. Just this one little bank that only had one office, which was probably a, a, a file in a desk drawer somewhere. They had accounts there. They had accounts at the very bank that was at the center and still remains at the center of one of the biggest um, gold smuggling uh, scandals and controversies uh, in Asia. I mean, this is this is something that is constantly coming up in the news in that part of the world because there's a whole bunch of gold the Japanese and the Nazis buried uh, in that part of the world. So, you know, much of it hasn't been found yet. And yet here's a bank at the very center of it. And here are my guys, you know, in the 1950s with accounts at that bank. This would explain how they were able to live Mm -hmm. on this remote island. I mean, they had no visible means of support. They had, I mean, they could be functioning as doctors, but on Sumbawa, they get paid in fruit you know, and lizards or something. I mean, there was no, you know, I mean, it wasn't like they were going to make a fortune living in this place. So they had to have a lot of money. And But gold isn't very liquid, though. I mean, how do you, you know what I mean? You can't just walk into, walk around the island with gold bars. No, certainly. But the fact that they had accounts at the bank means that they had some way to liquefy Mm. those assets, right? So it wasn't like they just took the gold out of the vault. Right. But they had accounts there, and those accounts are probably what enabled them to exchange the, the gold into local currency. And the man's wife, whether it was Helen or Eva, was always taking trips back to Europe. Once the, the dust had settled, uh, she was going back to Europe a number of times. 
He never did. He stayed behind in Sumbawa. He hated to leave the island. But she was going back and forth. And the last time she went back to Europe was the same year that Eva Braun's father got ill, took ill and died. She went back almost the same time that he was just about a month or so before he died, which led me again to wonder, was this really Eva Braun? Mm-hmm. You know, and did she feel that it was safe enough for her to go back? Because when she did go back, she never left again. She never went back to Indonesia. So we have our, our guy living in Indonesia who then converts to Islam and marries a local uh, Indonesian woman. And he tells her, according to her own testimony, he tells her that he's Adolf Hitler. Hmm. Now, at one point in the story, if you all remember 1965, which I guess you don't, but I don't, but some people will. (laughs) Let's let's pretend that they do. Let's let's pretend that they do. 1965 was very famous in Indonesia. It's called the Year of Living Dangerously. Um, 1965 was the, the, the time of the military coup that basically ousted Sukarno from power and put the generals back in charge. This was a CIA-involved coup d'etat. The CIA was trying to overthrow Sukarno for years. Um, and oddly enough, Lee Harvey Oswald was part of that attempt. Mm. He, was, he was in the Marines at the time, stationed in the Philippines, getting ready for an actual invasion of Indonesia, had the president authorized it, which he had not. But there was uh, the CIA overflights, and they were you know, supplying rebels and everything else in Indonesia. Um, so at that time, that was in the 1950s. By 1965, then this had taken place in earnest. It was believed Sukarno was in bed with the Chinese communists, that he was trying to let the Chinese communists take over Indonesia. That was the scare tactic that went around. The generals took over. Suharto became president. Rest is history. Well, in 1965, when this is happening, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Indonesians are being slaughtered. This was the excuse that a lot of groups needed to basically uh, take out their frustrations on their neighbors. So Chinese people, people who are ethnically Chinese, were slaughtered mercilessly. Um, And on the island of Bali, again, we had, some people say tens of thousands, others say hundreds of thousands of people were killed on Bali alone. Now, Bali is a couple of islands away from Sumbawa. And as it happened in 1965, our friend, our Georg Anton Poch, or whoever he was, wound up in Bali. He was actually in Bali at the time when the slaughter was taking place. Hmm. And then he returns and tells his Muslim wife, his local wife, his Indonesian wife, that how happy he was to have gone there and saw a lot of his old friends. Hmm. What kind of old friends are you visiting in Bali at a time during a military coup and and basically martial law? You know, who is it that you're visiting? who Who are you talking to? So I was trying to follow that up as well. And I came across, uh, you know, names that he had dropped, none of which turned out to be true. So something very fishy was going on between this guy in Bali. And I think it had to do with the Nazi underground as well. And the fact that the Nazis would have been more than happy to help Suharto overthrow Sukarno and put a military regime in place in Indonesia, where it remained until the Asian economic crisis of 1996. You know, so we're talking about a really long, like 30 years of a military dictatorship in Indonesia, uh, engineered partially by us and and partially by what might have been a very active Nazi underground. Mm-hmm. Well, let me. I want to fill in some of the dots. Um, j- just a couple of quick questions to fill things in. You mentioned that um, that that Polk's wife goes back and forth to back to Europe and then stays back in Europe the same year that Ava Braun's um, father dies. What's interesting about just to put like a little button on on Hella Polk, is that as we established, she was very important um, to Germany and to the Nazi regime at the time. She moves to Indonesia and basically goes into obscurity. You know, the yes. whole story is about Polk and how important he was, but she doesn't. She basically fades completely into obscurity. And if I'm saying, if I'm remembering this correctly, Eva Braun was mostly unknown to the German people, so they wouldn't. Absolutely. So they wouldn't have even have known who she was. Um, and I believe you make this point in your book that he wanted to make sure that Hitler, I mean, Hitler wanted to make sure that the people of Germany thought of him as a focused, single minded leader um, without distractions and having a girlfriend, wife, whatever would 
you know, created that distraction for him. So it is very interesting how important she was that she fades completely into obscurity, which, you know, adds credence to what, to the argument that you're making for, for her. Right. I think that it, had Hitler escaped the bunker, let's say he escaped in April of 1945 or May, there's been a lot of discussion about that. He could not have gotten out, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, uh, he could. Hannah Reich, his, fam- his favorite pilot, was able to fly in and out of Berlin in the last days of the war um, under dangerous circumstances, but she managed to do it and was eventually arrested in again in Austria while she was making her way to Salzburg, the same place where all of this is taking place. I mean, Otto Skorzeny was going there. He gets captured. Hannah Reich was there. When Hannah Reich is captured, this woman, this female pilot, this excellent pilot, she's captured. She doesn't believe Hitler committed suicide in the first place. She doesn't believe he's dead when the Allies capture her. And that she does believe that they were heading towards a mysterious redoubt you know the national redoubt this was like an underground fortress of caverns and everything else in austria near the salt mines and she believed all of that was true because they were always talking about it at the bunker so i'm thinking to myself if i'm hitler how am i going to escape let's say i can't get on a plane let's say it's too late for me to do that let's say i'm as sick as they were portraying me to be Mm -hmm. which i have doubts but let's just say that i was what better way to escape than an old man in a wheelchair being pushed by a nurse. All Hitler had to do was shave off his mustache, right, and wrap himself in blankets in a wheelchair. No one would have suspected him. In the first place, no one knew Eva Braun existed. Uh, As you mentioned, that was very important. Only the inner circle knew about Eva Braun. But the German people didn't know. The Allies didn't know that there was such a person. So suddenly now we have this additional information. We have a woman and an old guy in a wheelchair, you know, going through the streets of Berlin. It, this very, very likely this could have happened, as opposed to taking a very dangerous flight out of Berlin at the last moment. He could have just been an old guy, an old sick guy in Germany. You know, he would have had tremendous access to fake identification and fake papers. That would not have been a problem. No one knew Eva existed. All she had to do was, was be a nurse or, or just a caretaker of this old man, and they would have walked out of Germany. You know, they would have been one of those people that nobody would have paid attention to. Yeah, I mean, because this is the part of the story that, like, that does make sense to me. But, you know, there was a long history of assassination attempts, uh, and as you mentioned, by Hitler's own generals. So the paranoia must have been overwhelming for him. When when you think about the people who did that, like Goebbels uh, killed his entire family and his dogs, uh, you know, there were were people who were committing suicide, other SS and uh, Nazi officers who were doing that. Um, how did Hitler get out? I mean, the old saying goes, you know, two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. You know, who, who knew he left, you know, because uh, who could he trust? I mean, how did, you know, what you're saying makes sense, but to me, someone would have known that he left. Someone would have given him up. The fact that he lived as long as he did, if, if that story holds true, that's kind of what, if anything, that's what I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is how did no one, you know, how did he get out without anyone knowing? Well, he did have loyal followers. He did have people that he did trust. Um, Hannah Reich is one very good example. Mm-hmm. Scorzani, Otto Scorzani was another excellent example of somebody he could have trusted to help get him out. Scorzani was his favorite commando, the guy who rescued Mussolini. Uh, the Scarface Scorzani was a devoted Nazi for his entire life, long after the war. Scorzani himself was heading back to Austria and to the Tyrol and to that region. So... I would, have, I would assume, if, if he was getting assistance from anyone, it would have been through Scorzani, because Scorzani, after the war then, shows up as one of the prime movers of the rat lines. He's one of the guys who's helping to finance it. He's sending money to the, the Middle East, for instance, to finance revolutionary movements there. He has access to the gold in Switzerland, very important. And he has access to a trusted group of SS officers that he's in charge of, the, the famous Odessa group. So... Here we have a guy who, who is extremely loyal to, to Hitler, remained loyal, as we know, through his entire life, as well as a guy called Hans Ulrich Rudel, who was a famous Luftwaffe pilot, an ace with, I think, more than 80 kills to his credit. Mm. Uh, Rudel was also very, very uh, patriotic and very pro-Nazi and very pro-Hitler. So between Rudel and Skorzeny, at the end of the war, they wind up actually running the rat lines. 
So these are the guys in charge of the money, the finances, the documentation effort, and everything else. These are the guys who are going to South America all the time, going to North Africa and the Middle East, uh, putting in their appearances, making sure everybody is you know, fat and happy. If, if I was going to trust anyone, I think if I was Hitler, I would have trusted people like that, that he knew personally. Mm-hmm. He would not trust the generals because they had all betrayed him. He wouldn't trust Himmler. He'd be very suspicious of the SS in general because of Hitler's betrayal. But he also knew the SS was the most fanatic and most loyal of all the people in Germany. He couldn't trust his army. He couldn't trust the Wehrmacht anymore. But he could kind of trust the SS because they had taken the personal oaths to him. They were Their oath was to him personally, not, not to anything else. So between that, Skorzeny, Rudel, Hanna Reich, there were a lot of people who would have been throwing up smoke to let him escape. Uh, Hanna Reich was, was, I think, one of them. Skorzeny, definitely another. You know, and Skorzeny was very coy about whether or not Hitler had survived the bunker when he was finally captured. Mm-hmm. And Although he was captured, he walked out of prison not too long after he was captured, just simply walked out and disappeared, wound up in Franco's Spain. So there was a lot of stuff going on behind the, behind the scenes with these guys. I think that if there was an escape route planned, I think that we could have relied upon Skorzeny, Hanna Reich, Hansel Rickrudel, and people like that to have been involved in it. Uh, there definitely was an escape you know, routes that the Nazis were using into Austria and from Austria to northern Italy. This was a very well-known, very well-traveled escape route. It had begun in the 1940s, in 1944. So we knew they were moving money out uh, as early as the summer and fall of 1944. They were moving personnel out. The, uh, the German corporations, the big ones that were going to be divested as soon as the Allies took over, they were moving their assets out of, out of Europe entirely to put them into safe places in South America, even in North America and the United States and in Asia and other parts of the world. So there was a huge flow of men, materiel, um, assets out of Germany beginning in the fall of 1944. So I think that we don't really still know the extent of it. We haven't found all the gold. We haven't found all the artworks. There's been so much that's still missing. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to uh, entertain the idea that Hitler had some way out, you know, that he wasn't completely alone in trying to get out of Berlin, but that he did have assistance to get at least as far as Austria um, and the Tyrol, and then finally into northern, uh, northern Italy, which is where he would have been safe for a while. That, okay, that, that's a good argument there. The, that I can kind of wrap my head around, um, to think that he wasn't like a destitute old man without, without where everyone had turned on him, which I guess mm-hmm. is kind of how he's portrayed. The other thing that kind of confuses me is the Russian, the Soviet behavior at the time. Um, oh, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, not only the fact that, well, let's, let's start with, let's start as early on as I can think of. Why were they burying and then digging up and then reburying bodies? What was the point of that? I don't really understand. Did they not want to have the bodies on them? I mean, who are they going to get caught? I don't, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. And yet this is what, this comes directly from the Soviets' own reports on this that were declassified. I mean, I read through it and I couldn't figure out what the hell they were doing. You know, it didn't make any sense at all. Oh. Um, it it might have been due to, Maybe the battle lines were moving. Maybe there was, you know, between the Soviets on the one side, you had the British, the French, the Americans. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were trying to stay out of the out of the reach of the other allies. But, I mean, then just drive straight back to east, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the point, you know? So it's, it's one of the most mysterious things. I've read through it, and I really, I still can't get my head around it. And then why deep-six them the way they did? Right. They buried them in a parking right. lot, mm-hmm. you know, in Magdeburg. I mean, what was the point of that? And then what was the point of digging them up? Yeah. No one knew they were there, you know, except a handful of guys at KGB headquarters. No one else even knew about it. No one was thinking about this any longer. What was the point? You know, there, there just seems to have been no point to this at all. And yet this comes from the official Soviet documents. So it's like, you know, what, yeah. what can I say? What can I say? I mean, it's, you know, and did Stalin believe that Hitler was dead or did he really believe that Hitler had escaped? Was he just using that as a you know, as, as, a, as a weapon to beat on uh, Churchill and, and Truman. You know, you know, you guys are protecting Hitler. We know that he escaped and you guys are protecting him. As it turned out, we were protecting a lot of Nazis. Right. Yeah. You know, we were protecting Klaus Barbie most famously, but others as well. We knew where Mengele was for years. You know, we knew where all these guys were. We knew where Eichmann was. I mean, there's enough information that we really knew how the rat lines were operating because by 1945 and 1946, we were using... 
the rat lines ourselves. Right. We had employed Krunoslav Draganovich, our famous father devil, the Monsignor who created the rat lines. We were using him to identify Nazis we could use in the fight against the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. So very shortly after World War II, we were told to find the Nazis, but not to prosecute them, but to hire them. So suddenly the whole emphasis switched and changed to where we were looking for hot Nazis we could use. Klaus Barbie was one of them. We used Barbie for a couple of years before he got out of uh, Europe and wound up in Bolivia. Uh, that was just one example. There were all kinds of other guys who escaped. Walter Rauf. Uh, Walter Rauf was an SS uh, general who was involved in creating the mobile gas vans before they developed the, the gas chambers at the, at the death camps. He, he, involved, he created this idea, we'll just run the exhaust into the back of these vans and drive around till everyone's dead. This guy died peacefully in his bed in Chile years and decades after the war. But before then, he was working partially for American intelligence, and at one point he was working for Mossad, Israeli intelligence. Mm -hmm. That the Israelis could have actually hired the guy who invented the gas chambers to work for them, right? Yeah. I mean, this this tells you the real nature of politics Absolutely. in the world, the real reality. Mm -hmm. you know? No, and I think, you know, one of the, in life for me, one of the, the, the hardest and most important lessons I learned is the reality of politics. Exactly what you're saying there, working with your enemy. And what a lot of people I don't think realize, especially people who are going to listen to this, is that very quickly after World War II, we went from you know, chasing the Nazis around the world and persecuting them to hiring them and bringing them here for a rocket program against the Soviets. So one of the things that's always me as a person bothers me is when I don't understand people's motivation. And so what we're discussing uh, with the Russians is one of those things where I want to know what their motivation was. Um, and, and, you know, we, we may never know, but I do know that at that particular point in time, while the Soviets were working with us, very recently in history, they were one of the Axis and they were working with Germany. So they weren't, it was more the enemy of our enemy, you know, is our friend. And so right when the right. war's over, we're, you know, the Cold War starts almost immediately between the West yeah. and the Soviets. So they were no friend of ours. And so I don't think they wanted to give us information. And my belief is that there's, in some part of that, there's a mixed up logic as to why you'd be carting these bodies around burying them and digging them up. I don't know, but the answer has to lie in there. But the point I want to get to is that, you know, in 1970, this obscure man dies in Indo in a remote part of the world. And as you point out, you know, less than 90 days later, the Russians go through all that trouble to dig up these rare known bodies and burn them, suggesting that they knew they didn't have Hitler and that Hitler had just died. I believe that's kind of what you're inferring, right? That's one of my implications, yes. yeah, sure. So the point that I want to make is they must have known that that was Hitler. How does that news travel so fast? You know, if if he dies, someone must have known that Hitler was there. Um, and I grew up at a point where people were, you know, poo-pooing the idea of, oh, there's pictures of Hitler here. You know, like the Weekly World News was one of these goofy organizations. Right. But sure. you would hear in some credible places where people say, no, we have pictures of Hitler. And, you know, they would poo-poo it and no one believed any of that. But, you know, the fact that the Russians yeah. within 40, within four months knew that Hitler had died, if your if this story holds water, which I believe that it does, uh, why didn't they go after him earlier? Like, you know what I mean? Like, why, how come he dies, they dig up this whole... Because they go through such fanfare to dig up and cremate the bodies, you know, because they didn't want forensic evidence that they didn't have the bodies and that he'd actually escaped, right. you know, and that they've been wrong all these years. You know, that's what I would assume they were destroying the evidence. How did they... They must, they must have been some communication open. Why didn't they go after him? Why did no one go after him? Someone must have known he was there. Well, well, I think somebody did. I think somebody killed him. I think that's what happened. They found him. And oh, I see what I think you're saying. Okay, mm. I think I think he was somehow he was somehow um, uh, seduced into going into Surabaya. This guy never left his island once he right, got there. Right. You know, and but the only time he leaves, he dies almost immediately. <laughs> Which is why he never left. <laughs> Which is why he never mm -hmm. left. And I think that I think that's it. You know, he 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 was safe as long as he stayed on that island because anybody who would come looking for him, they'd be able to see them from miles sure. away, right? A couple, of, a couple of Israeli commandos would have been right, very, right, right. very visible. There's no way, right? But in Surabaya, which was a port city and very busy, it would have been easier. 
And it was 1970 by that time. So for some reason, somebody manages to convince him to go up there to this port city. And it's a European from the name in the book. So he has this meeting. He goes up there and he dies immediately. I think he was killed. And it might have been the Israelis. It might have been the Soviets. It might have been anybody. I don't know who would who would have done it. I think a lot of people had him on, on the list, right? So he, he's dead. And, you know, then suddenly everybody's scurrying around in Indonesia because they don't know who this guy really is. They don't know what day he was born and what, and the day that he died, they didn't even want to commit to that, right? So there's all this mystery about it. There's all this, uh, you know, uh, uh, obfuscation that's taking place. Was it the Soviet? Did, did the Soviets know all along where the guy was, that this guy was Hitler, and that he was living in Indonesia? Did they? That's the crucial question. Or did they find out at the last minute and had him killed, right? Or did they know all along? If they knew all along, why would they keep him alive? What would Hitler living on that remote island, have to hold over the Soviets, mm-hmm. you know? Well, besides his existence, what? I mean... Besides, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. His mere existence proves yeah. that they were lying for years, decades. Sure. Well, there's that, plus, you know, maybe there was a gold factor mm. involved mm-hmm. as well. Maybe there was something else or some other political thing that we're, we're just not aware of um, where he was valuable to them in some way. Uh, I don't know. Or just they just kept him on ice until they could use him for some other reason, you know. Then when it got too hot, they... They killed him. I don't know. But why kill him discreetly? Like, if we even look in our recent, in our recent past, Obama took out Osama bin Laden, which was a big thing. Now, granted, that's Amer- an American going after someone attacking America. But if, as you're suggesting, the Israelis took out Hitler, why would they not? Why would that not be publicized in some way, shape, or form? I mean, basically, it would have gone down into obscurity had you not kind of connected the dots. It, you know, maybe that's just my American way of thinking. <laughs> but why would well, no one say anything? Uh, I'll give you an example. I'll give you from my own okay. life. Uh, in 1970, myself, I went to Chile, uh, and I went to a place called Colonia Dignidad. And Colonia Dignidad was a safe house on, on the rat line, although it was in Chile. It was high up in the mountains on the Argentine-Chilean border. And this was run by a bunch of Nazis. And Mengele had been there. Hans Ulrich Rudel had been there. Otto Skorzeny, as we found out later, all these guys had been through there constantly. This was like a resort for these guys. Well, I was down there in, in July of 1979. And when I got back, I managed, I managed to escape with my life, the end of June, beginning of July of 79. Long story. It's covered in my book on Holy Alliance. When I got back to the States... One of the first places I contacted was the Simon Wiesenthal people, right? So I go and I contact them in New York. I was living in New York at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm from New York, and I went and tried to talk to them about this, and they cold-shouldered the entire thing. They basically said, no, we're not interested. And I said, you're kidding me, right? I mean, <laughs> I was there. I saw what's going on. I saw the leader. I talked to the local townspeople. I, I learned what was going on. This is very important. No, nothing to see there. Forget it. Don't even go there. It's, there's nothing. And I thought, well, this is really, really strange. You know, why wouldn't they be all over this? And then I only found out a couple of years ago, this is, you know, decades later, I found out that there was an official policy uh, among the Simon Wiesenthal Foundation people that we're not going to talk about Colonia Dignidad. We're not going to bring it up. We're not going to do anything about it. The reasons are a little obscure. They're a little murky. But again, it has to go to real politics, Mm -hmm. right? It has to go to the reality of it. And they just shut it down. So here I was with this story that nobody wanted to hear. And I had actually done it myself. I had been standing right. there. And I'm saying, there's Nazis and there's doctors. and They're doing medical experiments and, and they're kidnapping children. And this whole thing, I mean, I was being told all this stuff. And I come back full of this. I think, well, I'm, I have this story. But when the Pulitzer Prize here, <laughs> nothing, nothing. Nobody wanted to know. Nobody wanted to hear about wow. it. Right. So today you can look on YouTube and there are you know, hour-long videos uh, in, in Spanish with English subtitles that show you the entire story of this colony that I went to, the fact that they were developing weapons of mass destruction. They were developing sarin gas, among other things. They were assassinating people all over the world. They were blowing stuff up. This was a major terrorist operation run by Nazis, you know, in collusion with the various military regimes in Latin America and in Europe and every place else. It's all there. And I was standing in the middle of it. Nobody wanted to hear that story. So I'm very cynical now, you know. Hmm. Did the Israelis kill this man in Surabaya? If they did and they kept it quiet, it's because of the same reasons that Simon Wiesenthal didn't want to talk about Colonia Dignidad or, you know, all this stuff. When the Israelis snatched Eichmann, 
they came under such heavy international censure because of it, because they had violated national sovereignty and all the rest of it, that they never did that again. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they knew where some of these Nazis were, they knew their locations. They never actually did it again. They stayed out of it, and I think that's part of the reason. Let's go and get him. Let's kill him. You know, we'll put a star on the wall somewhere, and maybe in a hundred years we'll tell. You know, our great grandchildren will hear about it. Maybe that's what's what's going on. Wow, what a story. Peter, Lavenda, this is an incredible story. Uh, we're coming to the end here, but I do want to... I wish I could have been there the moment you picked up that diary because it sounds like it was an entire puzzle waiting to be unlocked with secret codes, addresses, names, um, telephone numbers uh, <laughs> of top Nazis, SS officers. I mean, it must have just been an incredible find. Uh, and I believe... I, Tell me if this story is correct, but I believe our, I heard you mention in, in, in another interview you did that when you went to this graveyard, the guide who brought you there whispered to you, Hitler. Yes, that's true. What a story. That's, yep. <laughs> it's very <laughs> It's very spooky. It's a very spooky place to be, I can tell you, too. I mean, yeah, this is this is just incredible. I mean, we didn't even get to the rat lines themselves, which is the, this entire network that I think if people understood how they worked, uh, I mean, even the fact that the Vatican was in there, the, you know, the, the, the whole communist versus Nazi thing kind of blew my mind where you had people who were more concerned about the spreading of communism, and that was a greater enemy than the Nazis who had decimated and tried to commit genocide side in Europe uh, I mean my, my my brain was having a really hard time getting wrapped around all this historical fact it was oh yeah it's 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 stunning I mean it's just really stunning and it, it shows you how the world really works and it's kind of disappointing or disillusioning but that's how the world really works man you know <laughs> the, the communists were, were more of a problem than you know people who had committed mass genocide you know uh, so there you yeah. go Well, Peter Lavenda, thank you so much. I I cannot recommend your books highly enough. Specifically, we were talking about Ratline. Um, You can pick it up. It's available. Uh, But also Unholy Alliance and um, the – what was the other one? Um, The Hitler Hitler Legacy. Legacy. I want to say Hitler Codex, but the Hitler Legacy. Uh, These are great books. They will change your view on history, the Nazis, and Hitler himself. Um, Peter, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. It's been educational. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very thank much. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every single episode of this podcast, uh, free of charge, by the way, or if you want to learn how to follow on social media, you will find at the bottom of the page links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages. It's very easy to find. The little images are at the bottom. You can also subscribe to what I would consider to be the most clever newsletter in the business today bottom of the page it'll tell you about upcoming guests as well as any other project that i'm doing you can also subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode on itunes and stitcher and guess what we're now on google play listen to it all of it you can subscribe to whichever you want all of them make sure you don't miss it uh or pick your favorite it doesn't really matter as long as you listen and please if you like what i do you want to learn about other projects that i'm doing check out everything on danieljglenn.com thank you so much for listening End of transmission.